Welcome to Politics on Right. Today we start with Bernie's take on the new inflation numbers. We then reprise an interview I did with President Clinton's Labor Secretary Robert Reich. We then do a piece on the real cause of inflation, corporate greed and incompetence. And of course, uh, we close with a feel-good story, a kidney transplant that shows our real humanity. Uh, you know, on Chris Hayes, Bernie was a guest and they were talking about the, the better-than-expected inflation news. And Bernie had to say, ho, 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 hold your horses. It is great that that has occurred, but there is much more that needs to be done. Check this out, then we'll take it on the other side. Senator, it strikes me that there is a story progressives can tell about this economy that is there for the telling if they if they choose it, that is a kind of counter to the story Republicans and conservatives really rushed to tell, particularly about the Reagan economy in, in 80 to 84 as this kind of look what happens when you listen to us sort of situation. We're due all the credit for it. And I wonder if you if you see it that way as well. Well, I think there is some very good news. Uh, inflation is causing a lot of pain in this country. Very good news that it's going down. We're seeing some really good job growth, especially, Chris, in areas like manufacturing, uh, where we have seen significant declines in manufacturing jobs for many, many years. Uh, and I think as a result, by the way, of many federal programs, we're putting more cash into the pockets of working people. Uh, but having said all of that, I think in the Congress and in the media, we don't do a good enough job in talking about the reality of life for working people. 60% of our people today, including many seniors, are living paycheck to paycheck. And at the same time, we see more income and wealth inequality, and it's good to see we're making some progress in that area, but we have more income and wealth inequality than we've had in 100 years. We have more concentration of ownership in mm -hmm. sector after sector, as you well know. Handful of corporations who are enjoying record-breaking profits, by the way, control uh, those uh, what we what we purchase uh, in 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 our stores. Whether it's oil, whether it's food, uh, whether it's pharmaceuticals, uh, whether it's media, whether it's Wall Street, increased concentration of ownership. And then when you look at the power of the billionaire class, and you talked about this a moment ago, in terms of politics. It's a record-breaking amount of money, unbelievable amounts of money that billionaires are pouring in dark money and not dark Can money I, into the political process. So let me, we've got to pay attention to those issues. Let me ask you, I want to ask a question about uh, the labor market and, and, and organized labor, but let me just follow up on that. I thought it was so fascinating. So all these headlines about Sam Bankman-Fried giving all this money to Democrats, which he did. He gave a lot of money through an, an allied super pack. That was all money that was traceable. And then he gives an interview. He says, well, actually, you know, I gave just as much to Republicans. I just gave it kind of under the table through these dark money vehicles, thanks to Citizens United. No one really notice and it, what an object lesson in how this how this can how this can work up on capitol hill absolutely uh, let's not kid ourselves uh it is you know we talk about trump and his friends being a threat to democracy the other threat to democracy is citizens united and the ability of billionaires through dark money and sometimes not dark money uh, to buy politicians and buy elections uh the bottom line of all of this is that we need to see an increased grassroots movement. And by the way, very good news is we are seeing a growth in the trade union movement. More and more workers are wanting to join unions, stand up.
up for collective bargaining at decent wages uh, and working conditions. Just this afternoon, I was at a rally with rail workers who showed enormous courage in standing up to their industry, made their industry, made $20 billion in profit last year, and yet they cannot give these guys one paid uh, sick leave a year. One, not one, which is just horrific. So what we have got to do, and I hope to do as chairman of the Health Education and Labor Committee, is tell the people who run Starbucks, tell the people, Bezos and others who run Amazon, you know what? Stop the illegal anti-union activity. Workers have the right to organize. We workers have the right to organize. Thank you guys for listening to that. Hey, listen, guys, if you take a listen, listen to what Bernie is saying, he's saying the working class has got to activate. The, the unions are starting to get emboldened and starting to demand their worth. Uh, we, we can't look at a, a simple drop in uh, inflation as, as the ends ends all because there's so much more to do. We have to talk about wage increases and much, much more. So Bernie hits the nail on the head as Bernie always does. We're glad to hear that uh, he didn't just take the bait. Oh, things are looking great. Yeah, they're getting improved, but they're not. So thank you so kindly, Robert Davenport, for that great super chat. Super support independent progressive media. Egberto is a great place to start. Thank you. Thank you for that super chat. Anybody else want to give a super chat? Just click on that. Uh, either click a join button or click on the super chat button uh, and, and support us. We need your support as best as you can. We are way, way behind in, 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 in subscriptions for this year, way, way behind in contributions for this year. I know it's a difficult year, so I understand, but we are in, you know, we, uh, to keep this going. We got to do a hell of a lot better. So I, I, I urge and I ask all of those of you who have the wherewithal, the ability to do so, to please support the program. You know, I've been talking for a long time about our economic system being rigged. And in fact, I wrote the book, How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It. Um, and the reason I wrote that was because the, the continuum of a particular economic system that continues to hurt the poor, the middle class, the working class. And, you know, a few years back, back in 2011, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Robert Reich. Everybody remember him as President Clinton's Secretary of Labor. And I remember talking to him and about how, how, this, how, how this particular system is so poorly designed for the average person, whether it be wages, whether it be healthcare, all these other issues. And that's been 11 years. So I I want you to listen to this interview and notice how much stayed the same in 11 years where we should have had some sort of progress. And that brings one to the conclusion that it is not the people, it is not the government, it is the actual result of the economic system that we have. And the only solution, well, we'll talk solutions after uh, this interview. Listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. Welcome to a special edition of Politics Done Right. I'm your host, 
Egberto Willis, and today we're honored to have Professor Robert Reich, President Clinton's Labor Secretary and author of the most informative book, Aftershock. Aftershock is one of those books that when you pick it up, you don't want to stop reading. I read it while I did my, you know, in the mornings when I do my 90-minute stint on the elliptical. It took me a few days to read it. But suffice it to say, by the time, the time went by so quickly that, and I was so engrossed in that book that I overstayed my welcome on the machine. I think if you can get a chance to get the book, you probably should. The country is in a bad state. The country is having some serious problems with our economy. And one of the things that we have are people not really understanding the genesis of the problem. And what this book does for you is it actually illustrates in layman's term. Uh, Robert Reich is a very well-educated intellect on economics, but he was able to put this book in a fashion that we can all understand. We are honored to have Professor Reich, which was President Clinton's Secretary of Labor between 1993 and 1997. He is now Chancellor of uh, Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley, and he has written 13 books, including the work of Nations Locked in the Cabinet, Supercapitalism, and of course his current book, Aftershock, which we will discuss in this interview. His marketplace commentaries can be found on public radio at publicradio.com. And he is, you know, one of the most well-respected economists, I would say, on the planet. But anyhow, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing just fine, and thank you so much for inviting me uh, to talk with uh, you and, and others. Uh, I'm very intrigued. Uh, mm -hmm. About uh, what I've heard about the coffee party, right? And uh, and also what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, I uh, I don't know how how best to use our time together. Whether you would like me to uh, talk a little bit about the economy and other issues, or whether I could uh, well, simply I, I, answer your questions. Well, I tell you what. Why don't you give me a little stance of our economy first, and then I have some questions that I would really like to answer. But let's let's go ahead and have you move it on. Uh, all right. I mean, the, the central problem we face right now um, is not the long-term budget deficit. Uh, that is important. It, can, it couldn't be and should not be ignored. Uh, but right now, the issue is jobs, wages, and economic growth. Uh, and uh, almost all our efforts uh, in terms of public policy and in economic terms, that really refers to monetary policy at the Fed, uh, and also fiscal policy with regard to taxes and spending. Almost all of our policies really do need to be oriented toward growth and jobs and wages. Uh, Europe is struggling with exactly the same, uh, in fact, a, a fiercer form of that tension. Uh, Europe is uh, dealing with its debt problems. In my view, it should be dealing with jobs and wages and growth. Uh, uh, because if you don't deal with what is most important, and that's jobs, wages, and growth, uh, your debt problems uh, become even worse. Uh, if you don't have a growing economy and people don't have jobs, they, uh, they're not going to pay taxes. Uh, businesses cannot pay taxes if the economy is not growing, so you have no, you have no government revenues. Uh, 
Uh, and if you have no government revenues, uh, your debt problem invariably uh, becomes larger and larger. Uh, so uh, the president's, when President Obama advanced his jobs program last week, uh, it really was critically important in terms of framing the public debate around jobs and growth. I worry a little bit, uh, although I applaud his move this week to ask the rich to pay their fair share with regard to reducing the debt load. I do worry that he will be inadvertently now shifting the frame of public discussion back toward the debt. Uh, and uh, most of what we will hear over the next uh, uh, two months or three months until the super committee, it's called, in Congress reports back, will be how to deal with the debt rather than how to reignite uh, and reboot the economy. Uh, and one final point on that particular issue. Uh, the economy right now is functioning way below its uh, productive potential, uh, what it could be functioning if we had, uh, we were at or near full employment. Uh, consumers uh, whose spending uh, equals about 70% of the national economy, consumers are not going to spend because, uh, well, they'll spend for, for necessities, but they're not going to spend very much more because they still have a huge debt burden. Uh, they still are worried about their wages and their jobs. Their wages are dropping. Uh, their home values are a third less than they were uh, in 2006. And so consumers really are uh, very reluctant to spend, and that's completely understandable. That's rational from the standpoint of consumers. But that also means that businesses are not going to hire more people because they won't hire without customers. And that's a vicious cycle. The only way out of that vicious cycle is for the purchaser of last resort, and that's government, uh, to come uh, to the plate to, to actually boost the economy through uh, spending on infrastructure, on education, uh, on what I would like to see, a, a Works Projects Administration and a new uh, Civilians Conservation Corps for the long-term unemployed, uh, on all sorts of things, including helping states, so states don't have to continue to lay off uh, teachers and firefighters and police officers and social workers and other uh, others who are so essential uh, to the middle class and the working class and the poor. Um, uh, the government, the federal government, has got to come forward. And uh, even if it means more indebtedness now, it will mean uh, a stronger economy later on. But uh, so there, uh, that's uh, that's my statement, uh, or at least my unprepared statement. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm delighted to hear any questions anybody has. Yeah, I have one specific uh, question firstly, and that is, what is so difficult in our economists remembering 1937, that dip that occurred when we had the exact I, or I should say the almost identical behavior that we are currently seeing from the right to bring down the debt in this in this at this time. Uh, well, we don't learn from history. Uh, is the simple explanation. Um, uh, 1937, we should have learned uh, because in 1936 and 1937, Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, did listen to those people, including some of his advisors, who said, "Well, we've got to cut back government spending. We've got to uh, reduce the money supply because uh, we are coming out of the Great Depression, uh, and uh, we need to worry about the national debt." He did that. Uh, the result was we went right back into the Great Depression. 
uh, we've got to make sure that the economy is healthy uh, before we start raising, uh, uh, you know, before we, we, we end the stimulus. Uh, before uh, we end fiscal and monetary policies that actually boost the economy. Uh, and we are, you're absolutely right, we're on the verge of doing exactly what we did in 1937. Now, interesting enough, if we take a look, and, you know, I, I did this thing about uh, a lot of people like to use Reagan as an example of cutting taxes and so forth, and he did something that I actually call reverse Keynesian, which was uh, he, at the same time that he cut, uh, cut taxes, he actually increased defense spending. And everybody thought, look, they're looking at Reagan today as some sort of a fiscal hero when he was nothing more than a backdoor Keynesian. Couldn't that be said that way? Uh, well, another way of putting it would be that he used military Keynesian. Is there it, you go. I mean, that, uh, that uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, to a certain uh, substantial extent, George W. Bush, uh, they spent huge amounts on the military, uh, providing a giant Keynesian demand-side boost to the economy. Uh, in the case of Ronald Reagan, uh, it did uh, generate a lot of growth, uh, but it also left uh, the first George Bush and certainly Bill Clinton with a huge deficit. Uh, in the case of George W. Bush, um, it, uh, it didn't generate very much growth because it came on top of uh, uh, his tax cuts uh, but also on top of a huge Medicare drug benefit, right. uh, which was uh, mainly in, in, in the way I look at it and the way I've, I've, I look at the numbers, uh, a big uh, bit of corporate welfare for the pharmaceutical industry. Right. Uh, and uh, George W. Bush was also dealing with an economy that uh, was much uh, frailer than Ronald Reagan's economy. But you're right. In either case, in both cases, it was military Keynesianism. Yes, that, that is quite interesting. Now, ultimately, what was the trigger for you to write this book, Aftershock? Uh, well, remember, I, I wrote this uh, really before the economy was in a so-called recovery. Right. Uh, and I worried, this was in 20, not, 2009, I worried at that time that uh, we wouldn't really have much of a recovery. Uh, because uh, the vast middle class uh, did not have very much uh, of the national income. So much of the mm -hmm. national income was still going to the top uh, that the vast middle class wouldn't have enough purchasing power uh, to keep the economy going. And I thought it was important to get that word out. Uh, and the notion that inequality, widening inequality, is a major reason we're in the trouble we're in. Uh, when so much money goes to the very top uh, and the middle class, working class, the poor, the rest of us don't have enough uh, uh, purchasing power to keep the economy going, uh, and certainly we can no longer go into deeper debt, you get into exactly the situation we hit in 1928, 29, 30, uh, when there wasn't enough aggregate demand because of widening inequality. Uh, so it, it seemed to me that uh, the argument needed to be made. Uh, as uh, clearly as I could, and uh, I wish. Uh, well, you know, I wish. I wish the administration had paid more attention. Let me now. Let me ask you this: um, You're an economist. There are thousands of economists here in, in town or in in the country. They are bound to know this absent politics. Why is it that we cannot get this message out? I mean, it's not rocket science per se. Why do you think what what do you think is a hindrance to getting this message out? Uh, 
Well, one of the problems uh, is that uh, economists generally don't like to talk about inequality because they feel that they have nothing to say, uh, that it's not part of uh, their profession. They deal with efficiency, uh, they deal with growth, uh, but they don't really deal with distributional issues. Uh, secondly, uh, most policy people uh, are reluctant to talk about it because they also um, uh, are worried about the politics. The minute in this country anybody talks about uh, reducing inequality, uh, they're accused of being a socialist or worse. Uh, a lot of politicians are reluctant to talk about widening inequality for the same reasons or because their uh, campaign donations, so much of them come from uh, the very wealthiest uh, people in our society or big corporations and Wall Street, uh, they uh, are reluctant to even mention uh, widening inequality. But we're, we're getting to the point where uh, the people at the top are taking home so much of the national income and so much of the national wealth. Uh, and uh, we have a huge, devastating, uh, ongoing uh, recession. Uh, it's not really a recovery for most people. And plus, we've got to bring down the long-term debt. Uh, so under these circumstances, uh, you can't avoid talking about all this. Now, when you said, when you called your book Aftershock, the first thing I did when I bought the book is I said Aftershock, uh, the reason it's kind of scary is because after an earthquake and you have aftershocks, you don't have one, you have several. So I was wondering if you were implying that we were going to be getting a whole lot of dips before we reach a, a new normal, if you will. Well, we're already um, uh, experiencing uh, economic uh uh, shock after shock. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, a lot of people thought last year, last spring, that we were coming out of the recession, uh, and then we had a little bit of an upturn in the first part of this year, uh, and then we experienced uh, uh, another aftershock, which is uh, the decline in consumer confidence, the decline uh, in another decline in home values, uh, and I expect that this will continue for a while. I mean, we, we're not going to get out of this, even if we have an adequate boost from the government in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, uh, because there's no capacity in the middle class and the working class and the poor uh, to keep the economy going. And when I talk about purchasing power, I'm not just talking about buying stuff, um, material goods uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, that are, that are, that's not sustainable either. Uh, no, I'm talking about the ability of the middle class, working class, and the poor in this country uh, to lead a good life. Uh, uh, and that entails a lot of non-material goods, uh, good health care, good environment, uh, high-quality education, uh, child care, uh, elder care, uh, all of the things that people want and need in order to have a higher standard of living. Uh, most people these days simply can't afford it. I mean, you brought up something that's interesting. I hadn't planned on asking this one, but it's, uh, you, you mentioned, the, in effect, the real estate and, and housing. Given the bubble and the, the, the fraud that we had in real estate that really have, that flooded the market with all these homes, how long before we get out of this dilemma, if you will, or should we just have the prices normalized all at once? 
Well, it's going to be a while, um, particularly if uh, the government does nothing. I mean, I, I think when, when we bailed out Wall Street, one of the conditions we should have put on the Wall Street bailout was that Wall Street modify all of these loans uh, that struggling homeowners can't possibly deal with. Uh, but we never demanded that Wall Street do that as a condition for getting a bailout. And as a result, we have now nearly a quarter of all homeowners who are underwater. Who right. own more on their homes than their homes are worth, and many of them are struggling to pay their mortgage bills because they have jobs that have their jobs have disappeared, their wages are going down, they have medical bills, uh, and uh, the administration unfortunately has not come up with a solid way of reducing this burden. Uh, I would say uh, there, there are two ways of doing it. Number one, uh, simply amend the bankruptcy laws to allow people to declare bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, and include their primary residence. Uh, the bankruptcy law, laws do allow someone to declare a primary, uh, personal bankruptcy and include uh, second homes or include uh, commercial property, but uh, they don't allow primary residencies. If you made that small change, it's not that everybody would declare bankruptcy. It's, it's, it's that you would give people more bargaining leverage with lenders, with mortgage right. lenders, uh, to re- uh, organize the terms of the loan. Uh, the second thing that could easily be done is for the Federal Housing Administration to buy up uh, uh, shares in people's homes. That is, if I have a $100,000 mortgage uh, and I can't meet the payments, the FHA comes in and says, well, we'll take $50,000 of that mortgage as long as we get a corresponding share of the upside gains right. when you resell the house uh, and the house is eventually going to go up in value. Uh, that uh, debt for equity swap would also help people a great deal. That is intriguing because uh, when we speak about people being underwater and for the responsible ones that decide to continue paying on this asset, isn't that really just a transfer of uh, implicitly a transfer of wealth? Of course it is. You know, and, and, and the question then is, uh, whereas companies, corporations can file for bankruptcies under any scenario, we have the average American citizen that can't. And again, uh, debt equity swaps are done all over the place. I mean, it, right. it's, we're not we're not giving people handouts, but if somebody can't meet their mortgage payment, uh, it seems to me entirely reasonable uh, for uh, the federal government to take over part of that uh, cost as long as the federal government and taxpayers get the upside gains. Uh, the same thing would be with uh, student loans uh, that can't be repaid. Right? Rather than have all of these huge student loan debts, the federal government ought to say, well, now wait a minute, we will do a debt equity swap. We will say to you as a student or as a family with a student who has big loans, uh, we'll take over part of that loan um, as long as uh, for the, the, for the student, the first 10 years of full-time employment, uh, the student uh, pays, say, 10% uh, of uh, earnings uh, back to the federal government. Uh, that would be kind of an equity stake, in other words, in uh, the student's uh, future earnings. I mean, you articulated that very well in the latter part of your book, Under the Bargain Restored. In fact, that was something I was going to ask about later on, but you brought that up. I, I actually love that idea because it actually encourages uh, students into low-wage uh, professions that are very necessary, teachers and these other professions that, you know, a lot of people would just look at now and say, well, I can't make a living on that. So I actually love that concept. Now, 
you actually you have the first part of your book was called what do you consider that uh, was considered broken bargain and my question to you is what do you consider then the broken uh, bargain well the, the old bargain uh, certainly between 1946 and 1975 it wasn't an explicit bargain but we all understood it was people ought to be paid enough money in this uh, for their work for their labors to be able to turn around and uh, and, and buy uh, enough to maintain a decent middle class uh, living standard or another way of putting that is that as productivity rose uh, everybody uh, should uh, gain higher wages in proportion. Uh, that was the rule. That's what we did do uh, in those three decades. Uh, as productivity gained, as the economy grew, uh, everybody shared in those gains. Uh, and that was the basic bargain. It worked very well for the economy because it, it gave people enough money so that they could turn around and buy uh, what the economy was capable of producing. Uh, we've Beginning in the late 1970s, and then with a vengeance through the 80s, 90s, and up to the present day, we've reversed that bargain. We've turned our backs on that bargain. Uh, productivity uh, continues to rise. The economy continues to grow. Uh, but average working people no longer are earning, uh, if they have jobs, nearly uh, uh, as much in proportion to the size of the economy. Uh, they actually, uh, many people, uh, many male workers, for example, are earning less than they did 30 years ago, uh, adjusted for inflation. Uh, if you're a, a wage earner, that is, you're paid by hourly wages, uh, you are almost certainly uh, paid less today than you were paid three decades ago, adjusted for inflation. Uh, well, uh, again, by breaking that basic bargain, we are shooting ourselves in the feet because we find we have this crisis of aggregate demand. Uh, the average right. people, uh, average working pe person, uh, if you add up all the average working people together, uh, the great middle class, working class, poor of America, uh, there's not enough purchasing power uh, to keep the economy going. Right. Now, I have a, a touchy subject here that I'd like to ask you about because I, I still don't have a good grasp of it, and that is NAFTA. Uh, where do you think NAFTA plays in our, and I mean in its entirety now, in, in, in our outsourcing issue? Well, I don't think that now the North American Free Trade Act was oversold, in my opinion, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, also the people who feared that all manufacturing jobs would go to Mexico, uh, their fears were overblown as well. Uh, manufacturing jobs didn't go to Mexico. They went to China. Mm -hmm. uh, they had nothing to do with NAFTA. Uh, North American Free Trade Act actually is not uh, a major cause of our problems today. Now, how do you express the problems in China, why why is our manufacturing going over to China as opposed to, let's say, using the NAFTA domain, if you will? Uh, well, uh, it's it's actually now leaving China. Uh, China is losing manufacturing jobs, both because uh, China is loading up its factories with technology that replaces people, but also because uh, Chinese labor is becoming uh, a little bit too expensive. And so companies are relocating in Thailand, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, uh, in Indonesia, uh, in uh, all over Southeast Asia. Uh, the other point is that China is... Uh, uh, is assembling components that are made all over the world, including uh, made in the United States. So to say that China is now the center of manufacturing now, uh, mm -hmm. I think actually uh, um, uh, simplifies too much. Okay. Now, what do you think will then be required for us to actually become manufacturers again? 
Uh, well, it, it, I don't think that's – I mean, there are a lot of things that we will continue to produce, but the manufacturing process, if you look in any modern factory today in the United States or even in Europe, is now mostly uh, done by robotics, uh, by numerically controlled machine tools. Yeah. Uh, it's not labor-intensive. The old assembly line is disappearing. Uh, you've got technicians sitting behind computer consoles who are connected up with the robotics and the numerically controlled machine tools, but you don't have large numbers of people doing manufacturing work. That's a that's a mythology. Um, manufacturing is not going to generate a lot of jobs, even if we got it back. Oh, okay. That that's something that I learned. I I didn't quite know that. So where do you think our employment picture uh, needs to come from? Well, there are two separate questions: where it will come from and where it needs to come from. Okay. Uh, uh, jobs, uh, if you look at 2006 and seven, just before the Great Recession, uh, we had about a 5% unemployment rate. Uh, the problem was that most of those new jobs we were creating in the early uh, part of this decade or the last decade uh, were in retail, restaurants, hotel, hospital, uh, surface transportation, child care, elder care. In other words, they were low-wage jobs. Uh, and those jobs, while many of them are important jobs, mm -hmm. uh, and many of them are, 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 are the people are certainly uh, worth respect, I'm not denigrating them, uh, they don't pay very much, uh, those sorts of jobs. And if you look at the jobs that have been created since uh, the uh, trough of the mm -hmm. Great Recession, you see that most of those jobs also are in the local service sector. So when jobs start coming back, as they have started to come back, uh, they're not good jobs. Our biggest long-term problem with regard to jobs isn't the number of jobs. We'll certainly have, you know, once demand returns, we'll have the right number. The real mm -hmm. problem is the quality of the jobs. And how do we get there? Well, so the the real question is how do we get higher quality jobs back? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me there are only two answers there. One is we invest better in education for the long term, and I'm talking about early childhood education as well as uh, a, a better and more effective higher quality K through 12 and better access to higher education, including community colleges. Uh, but also we have stronger unions uh, because stronger unions give uh, people, whether they are uh, have had higher education or not, uh, stronger unions give them more bargaining leverage in terms of getting uh, a portion of the gains from growth and productivity growth in particular. Um, the stronger unions, it seems to me, are, are absolutely essential uh, to give the middle class, working class, and the poor uh, greater uh, uh, access to uh, uh, a greater share of mm -hmm. the gains from economic growth. Excellent. Let me bring in, uh, there's uh, Bruce uh, had a question for you. So Bruce, could you go ahead? Oh, uh, hi. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so my name is Bruce McGue, uh, uh, Professor Rice. It's nice to, nice to talk to you. Hi, Bruce. Uh, so I, I enjoyed uh, reading your book, and um, I'm quite I'm quite interested in the uh, in the policy prescriptions you you offered, and in particular, um, the first two, at least by by my read, were on the reverse income tax and your reemployment initiative. 
And the reason I'm interested in, in these is because um, they both signal income redistribution, which uh, you've used the term already. Uh, it's sort of equated to socialism. And then as we've learned in the media, socialism is thought of as uh, anti-American. And so my question for you is, how, how would we as, a, as a, um, a citizenry have the politicians implement policies that are consistent with this kind of income redistribution? Well, first of all, Bruce, I, I don't think it's fair to call them income redistribution because it's not a zero-sum game in which uh, the rich have to lose in order for everybody else to, to gain ground. Uh, if you are a rich person, a very wealthy uh, member of the, of the super-rich of America right now, uh, you would do better with a smaller share of a rapidly growing economy than you will do with a big share, such as you have right now, of an economy that's almost dead in the water. Uh, it's in your interest uh, to make sure that people are well-educated, that we have good infrastructure, that the economy is growing again, uh, because you'll do much, much better. It's not a redistribution in that sense. And I think it's very important to answer the critics uh, who say this is redistribution uh, with an understanding that the dynamic economy works for everyone. We saw this in the first three decades after the Second World War, uh, when a rapidly growing economy uh, made a very, very large number of people very wealthy, but it also made everybody else uh, wealthy at the same time. Uh, the second point, Bruce, is that uh, in terms of, uh, for example, raising taxes on the wealthy, uh, the, the polls are overwhelming uh, in showing that uh, Americans fear, feel that the rich should bear a fair share of the sacrifices uh, that are uh, necessary to bring the long-term budget deficit down. Uh, the president's uh, laying down the gauntlet yesterday and saying that he's not going to sign any uh, bill uh, that uh, comes out of the super committee that does not, if it, if it, if it attacks Medicare, uh, he's not going to sign any bill that does not raise taxes on the wealthy, uh, was met by widespread approval. And, uh, and also, uh, again, not just the polls, but all the focus groups, everybody around the country. So uh, I say that only to underscore that when uh, income inequality becomes as out of whack as it is now, uh, a lot of the public uh, is not adverse uh, to uh, taxing the wealthy. Okay, well, th that seems fair, but then how do you explain the, the power? It seems that uh, political um, segments like the Tea Party have when they're advocating against raising tax on the rich. They seem to have a very strong hold on our uh, politicians. Well, I think that um, one uh, reason is because the Tea Party is in part uh, being subsidized by uh, the Koch brothers, uh, Karl Rove, uh, Dick Armey, uh, a lot of money is going into what looks and appears to be a grassroots movement, but uh, if you look very closely, uh, is very well financed by some very, very wealthy people uh, who want to pull the wool over a lot of uh, average people's eyes and convince them that uh, it's in their interest not to tax the wealthy. Uh, I think the other point is that many people in America uh, have bought into the mythology of trickle-down economics, that if you <laughs> reduce taxes on the wealthy, uh, you will create more jobs and, uh, and better wages. Well, uh, you have only to look at history and see that that mythology is a cruel joke. Uh, <laughs> you know, nothing trickled down. I mean, Ronald Reagan reduced taxes on the wealthy, and uh, middle-income people's wages stopped growing. 
Uh, George W. Bush reduced taxes mostly on the wealthy, uh, and uh, the median wage started to actually drop. Uh, I mean, there, there, there is no trickle-down economics, and, and, uh, and, and I think that uh, a lot of people who might be supporters of the notion of trickle-down economics need to be better educated about what actually has occurred. I think it's willful ignorance. Well, I don't know how willful it is or what it, what's going on, but I think it's, <laughs> it's all of our responsibilities uh, yes. to, uh, to get the truth out. Now, I have one more person that I uh, would like to get in, and that is uh, Bob Weil. Bob, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead, Bob. Hey, Bob. Uh, I don't think we've uh, really touched base since probably uh, we might have seen each other occasionally at Dartmouth, but uh, you interviewed me to get into Dartmouth, so that I give you uh, points for because it was one of my more fun times. Oh, but, good. I was, I, was, I was worried that you were going to say it was a terrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably did not take full advantage of the uh, academic uh, opportunities, though. But, you know, my biggest concern is that right now we're con we seem to be concentrating on jobs and um you know getting an economic recovery but it seems to me that the real strength of free enterprise and capitalism have been seriously compromised on uh for quite a while whether it be derivatives which basically have turned the concept of people investing into companies that they really believe in long-term into uh, speculating or gambling on what a stock's going to do short-term or Wall Street bashing companies for having a long-term vision like putting um, emphasis uh or equal emphasis on employees versus their investors and, um, you know, rewarding productivity. Uh, they seem to prefer to see layoffs and outsourcing and don't mind seeing huge amounts of, uh, you know, golden parachutes. Uh, or for another, I mean, I know I'm kind of going on, but uh, advertising and marketing seem to have trumped quality, goodwill, and word of mouth in terms of how um, the whole free market should make the cream rise to the top, right? And uh, how? So I'm kind of asking, how do we reward productivity and adding social value versus rewarding whoever's best at gaming the system? Uh, well, I, I mean that's a that's a big big question. A lot of it has to do with uh, finance. I mean the you know the big big the biggest games in the system uh, correspond with the rise of uh, financial capitalism as as opposed to product capitalism, uh, and that occurred uh, starting in the 1980s. Uh, with all of the takeovers and the leveraged buyouts uh, and has continued right up until the implosion of Wall Street and beyond. Uh, we had a great opportunity uh, to uh, reinstitute 
uh, what's known as the Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, unfortunately, the Clinton administration was responsible in part for getting rid of that, but that separated commercial from investment banking, and that reduced a lot of the gamesmanship that you are talking about. Not all of it, but it did reduce it. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, when the opportunity came uh, to reinstitute it, uh, we didn't. We came short of that. Uh, the regulatory financial reform measures we've passed so far uh, have still very, very big loopholes, big loopholes large enough for financial uh, investment bankers and uh, hedge fund managers to drive their Ferraris through. Uh, so uh, exactly. I'm, I, I think it's, it, is a, it is a huge problem, but it, I think, it, again, uh, we've got to work very, very hard uh, for sane separation of investment and commercial banking and, uh, and thereby sane financial reforms. Professor, thank you very much. I want to thank you all for, for your time and, and your interest. And I hope to see you at the uh, Take Back a Murky Dream. Great. You have a okay. good day now. Thanks, Thank all. you very Bye-bye. much. I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Robert Reich, Dr. Robert Reich. But the sad part about it is the more things change, the more they stayed the same. As I mentioned in the beginning of this, this particular issue, this interview, it is not the government, it's not our people. It is a flawed design of our economic system that lends itself to what we see in, in occurring in our economy, an economy that hurts most. I mean, when people are doing well, uh, they're really not doing well. I mean, they're living on credit. They're living on from paycheck to paycheck. Most of Americans are never ever doing well. They may be a bit comfortable, but they're never doing well as hard as they work. What we need, as we've spoken about many times, as I've mentioned in the book, How to Make America Utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it. What we need is not reform, but a revamping of the stakeholders in what makes an economic system. And that needs to start sooner than later. And the only way for that to occur is for us to ensure that we vote in primaries. And in the primaries, we elect progressive people who believe in moving us into an economy that serves us all. And then in the election, the actual uh, major election, you elect those progressives that you elected out of the primaries. There's no shortcut to change this economy, we have to change people. And the people we have to elect have to be people who are not bound to the moneyed interest, but who are ready to serve you. As usual, Ali Velshi did an excellent job bringing into the full subjects that most of the mainstream media refused to handle in detail as he did here. Of course, we were talking about inflation and whether the corporations are trying to gouge Americans. Ali Velci didn't come out as hard on corporations as I would hope. I want you to listen to this piece and then let's take it on the other side because I have a lot to say about sort of the coddling that we give those who decided to take over our economic system. We have to rest assured a, a, a particular fact. This economic system does not belong to the few. It belongs to us all. We are the ones who make it function. Check this out, and then we'll take it on the other side. 
According to Moody's Analytics, a typical U.S. household has spent about $445 more each month in 2022 because of inflation compared to last year. Now, on this show, we routinely delve into the various factors that drive inflation, the rise in the cost of raw materials and labor, the cost of energy to make things and the cost of transport to ship them, supply chain issues, even the war in Ukraine. But there's another factor that's often overlooked, corporate profits. When inflation is high, companies may raise their prices to pass the increased prices that they pay to consumers without cutting into their own profits. And that's understandable. But sometimes without us fully registering that they're doing it, companies take advantage of high inflation by using it as a cover to mark up products even higher than what would be necessary to recoup the higher costs. For example, during an investor call, the CEO of Kroger said, quote, we view a little bit of inflation as always good in our business. Look at AutoZone. It saw earnings jump 13% in the fourth quarter. And during an investor call earlier this year, its CFO referred to inflation as, quote, a little bit of our friend in terms of what we see in terms of retail pricing. Procter & Gamble raised prices by 9% in its latest quarter. Why? Because it can. According to the CEO of Groundwork Collaborative, a group that tracks corporate earnings, P&G admitted its strategy of keeping prices high to boost profits on an investor call. In fact, corporate profits in the non-financial sector hit record highs this year following a two-quarter dip in 2020. Quarterly profits have surged over 80% ever since, not to mention the sheer number of high-profile mergers and acquisitions that we've seen in the past decades. In many sectors, consolidation of that magnitude means that companies have become so big that they no longer have to compete with one another, so there's no incentive to keep prices low. During a September hearing, Representative Raja Krishnamurthy, who serves as chair of the Economic and Consumer Policy Subcommittee, addressed inflation, saying in part, there are other factors that contribute to inflation that have not received enough attention. One of those factors is extreme price hikes. In other words, companies raising prices far more than required to offset higher costs, even when accounting for shifts in supply and demand, resulting in the highest profit margins we have ever seen in the last 70 years. A rarely discussed factor that could, in fact, be a driver of the inflation that we're seeing today, or at least a part of it. Corporations charging more money for their products or services simply to increase their profits and bottom line under the cover of inflation. For more on this, I'm joined by Sheila Kolhatkar. If you're running a company right now, there are a lot of good excuses to raise prices. As you mentioned, costs of all sorts of materials have increased due to disruptions in the supply chain. We have a war going on in Ukraine. We're, we're still dealing with the effects of a pandemic. And then, of course, something happened that we've been waiting for for years, which is wages for average workers finally started to go up. So households have more money to spend. So the question then becomes, you know, why do they have to raise prices quite so much as they are. If they're really making 8% more money than they did last year, then obviously they've covered their own costs that have increased due to their own inflationary pressures. Then you have to look at the fact that, well, we live in a capitalist society and most corporations think that their only duty is to maximize returns for their shareholders. Corporations especially don't have a ton of credibility in the market right now. I mean, people have come to not trust them. And as you mentioned earlier, in fact, there have been so many huge mergers in so many areas that even before this inflation spike, a lot of companies were aggressively raising prices because they have almost monopolistic dominance in their yeah. particular market. I mean, for example, if you have been paying for internet service in your home for the last 10 years, uh, you have watched the prices just go up like crazy to the point where it's almost unaffordable for a lot of people. There are things 
that the government could do to try and address some of this, including trying to address some of the monopoly problems. But ultimately, uh, there isn't a whole lot that can be done to force these companies to stop behaving this way. Capitalists will do what capitalists will do. Listen to how I ended that piece that uh, where I cut that piece from what the, the woman had to say. She said, capitalists will always do what capitalists do. Right. That is absolutely true. And they will continue to do that until we, the actual owners of this economic system, the actual owners of our government, stop them from doing what they do. Because they will continue to do what they do if there's no backstop. They depend on us all for their success. They, they market our innovation. They market our work. They market our worth. Remember, executives do not innovate. I mean, one of the big factors that folks talk about leaving everything in the free market is under the pretext that if we take certain parts out of the market system, parts that really do not belong in the market system, that somehow innovation would fail. In other words, we wouldn't get as much innovation. The one fact that we forget to put out there is that the executives who command all the pay, the shareholders who command all the profits, they are not the ones innovating. The ones that are innovating are the ones at the bottom of the scale who get a fixed amount of money for said innovation, the person who invent the microchip, the person who invents all the pieces in your cell phones, the person who invents new foods, the person who invents the, 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 the healthcare procedures, the person who invents all these pieces within our economy. Most of them are working for a salary, a fixed cost. And then their innovation thereafter is marketed. Their innovation thereafter is profited on by executives and shareholders as they gouge us for that. In other words, they pay the innovator X amount of dollars. They force the rest of the American people to pay whatever inflated costs for said innovation that they've already paid for, and they laugh themselves to the bank. That is the system. Don't allow anybody to make it less evil than it really is. And if we continue, if we continue to follow the path, we already have the answers of what that path leads to. It leads to income inequality, wealth disparity, and you name it, they continue to take a bigger slice of the pie because they can. And why can they? Because we let them. If an economic system does not work for all of us, if an economic system only works for a few of us, that economic system is a fraud. I will contend that the current state of our economic system indeed makes it a fraud. And how do we stop that? We make sure to elect those who would prevent them from taking us as bait. New Jersey man receives kidney donation from Texas stranger. It was reported out of CVS Philadelphia. The life of a New Jersey man has been changed forever. 
It's all thanks to a donation from a complete stranger. Roy McIntosh was in need of a kidney. When his wife, Tashira, turned to social media for support, she found something better, a solution. Heather Schaefer, an army wife from Texas, offered to give McIntosh one of her kidneys. After months of tests, she was given the green light to become his donor. I'm just amazed. I'm going to give you another hug. I can't believe it was her, but I do believe it. She's real, Macintosh said. Now, the reason I talk about this brought me to tears. I, I just kind of copied that and blogged it yesterday. And I put in the story, this story is a real human story. One could take so many angles with the kidney donation transplant, especially in these polarized times. I mean, we are meant to believe that we are so different in the way we think, in the things that we believe. In, I mean, and, and what I always point out is if I sit down with every single person in this room right now and ask them what they want, what they want for their families, etc., it's generally the same thing. And in this case, this guy needed a kidney. But when we talk about how common we are in the things in need, what we are, who we are, both biologically and otherwise, this story is great because it's exactly what I talk about all the time, specifically the following. And it goes like this. This black man, his wife couldn't give him a kidney. His brother couldn't give him a kidney. His relatives couldn't give him a kidney because they didn't have a match. Here is this white woman far-fledged in Texas who said, let me see if I have the right markers in my genetics that it will be symbiotically related to this brother in New Jersey. And while his own relatives couldn't give him a kidney because they weren't matches, this woman from afar, supposedly from a different race, I, I'm glad that Bree says we are all one human race. Out of the benevolence of her heart, she says, I have two functioning kidneys. I am very healthy. I am going to do the right thing. I'm going to do, I don't even want to call it the right thing because the right thing isn't not given or given. The right thing was having compassion and she gave, while well, she gave the kidney. Right. And, you know, when I see this, what comes to mind is why do we continue to allow politicians, a plutocracy and all these guys to make us seem like there are real differences among us? We allow them to create those separations. Why do we allow that? And I would hope that all these news networks start showing stories like this instead of just stories about humans after humans and CRT and all of it. We need to learn history. We need to learn about the genocide we've committed. We need to learn about the good things we've done. We need to learn about all these things. It simply makes us the flaw, the flawed humans that we are. That's all. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more, nothing less. Michael Rodney says, Egberto, while I like stories like this, in less than five years, we're likely to see 3D printed kidneys ready for human transplant and in one form of suffering. I'd rather have a systemic solution than a feel-good story for one lucky person. I hear, I hear you. I hear you. And I agree with you. Brother Rudnan, but what I'm saying, this, I, notice what I said in my header, in my lead. I said, this story is a real human story. One could take so many angles with this kidney donation transplant, especially in these polarized times. While this is a kidney story, a healthcare story, the bigger story to me that has created trouble all over the land is the commonality of these two people that our society would like to make very different when they're not that different at all. 
I hope you enjoyed the program today. Please continue to support our programming. You know that we have a lot of work to do, so please support Politics Done Right. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.